Hello and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua, I am your host, and today's episode will be focused on modern history and the ideology behind how modern history has progressed. So we started off this season talking about the origins of government and money and education, and then talked about how those evolved and changed coming into modern history to set up our current modern systems. Well, I was planning on then talking about our current modern systems and kind of where that has led us. That was the plan. But in reality, I I think I need to insert this other grouping of episodes that I had planned for after that one. And instead, I'll do it before. Because within this time period of the modern history and the evolution of modern society, there was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that was really pushing a lot of these shifts that had brought us to where we are today. And these are often related to corruption and conspiracy and very wealthy elite individuals behind the scenes steering things. And all of this has had a huge impact. And so what I'm going to do, although I'm hesitant to do it, I'm going to start off with this episode talking about the ideologies behind these things. And uh, in addition to that, kind of where this lies within the ages of man framework and the evolution of society and what age we're in and what age we're headed into, this type of thing. So I'll talk about all those things. And then in the following episode, the next episode after this one, I plan on talking about uh, basically the more hard facts about these influences that are more behind the curtain, so to say. So at least my rough plan right now, and this could change, it does sometimes, but the rough plan right now is for the next episode to then talk about specific groups and individuals that have had a lot of influence and have for a very long time and uh, kind of read some quotes and talk about some investigations into these things and basically uh, how this actually unfolded from an historical perspective, not a conspiracy theory perspective, but from looking at actual history, congressional investigations, uh, what people said in their own words, these types of things. What has this influence been and how has it truly helped to steer the evolution of society into where we are today? Then in the next episode, I plan on getting into war and possibly oil. I don't know if I'm going to include that or not, but definitely war. Things like false flag operations and the overall goals of many of the wars we've gotten into. Why these wars have happened. Some, again, some of the corruption and conspiracy and the influences behind the scenes related to these things. And so that will be uh, the end of this kind of series. This kind of a small trilogy series on corruption and conspiracy, roughly, and uh, how these influences really have a huge impact that we don't really see and that isn't taught in any kind of modern history course by any means. And there's a reason for that. And I do plan on talking about that with the Carnegie Endowment, Rockefeller Foundation, and their influence on education and curriculum. So we'll, we'll get there. But first, I do want to talk about what these ideologies are. Why would people act this way? What are their goals? What's going on here? And where, do the, where does this come from? So I'm going to talk about that. But just do keep in mind that I am coming from this perspective that you already know 
that corruption and conspiracy is just a part of history and that that has been a large part of modern history and that that's not some theory or conjecture, but that is actually historical fact. So if you do not know that, then go back to season one, and I did a full series on corruption and conspiracy that's five or six episodes. It covers a lot more than what I'm covering in these few episodes. I do a lot of quotes and read directly from congressional investigations and such, all the way back, I think, from the 1700s, all the way into the late 1900s. And so I talk about all these types of things. So if you are not aware that our world is not as it seems, as far as who is really in control and how the world really works, then you might have to go back to those episodes and educate yourself in that direction. But I will go on from here, assuming that you already know this, and uh, we will talk about ideologies. So let's start off with a few theories and people that go back a little earlier than I'll mostly be talking about. And I could go all the way back to Plato. I do that a lot. But since I do that a lot, I, I will hesitate to do so. But Plato does talk about eugenics and Plato's Republic talks about setting up this ideal society where you have these philosopher kings that rule over the common citizens and you breed them according to their aptitudes and intelligence, these types of things, uh, basically set up a eugenic system. You censor their information. You control what they believe and what they hear and how their education progresses. And you monitor everybody at all times with constant surveillance. All these types of things. That goes way back to Plato's Republic. So do not think that these are modern ideas because there are modern twists. That is true. And you might only hear about them in a modern context, but these go way back. So, uh, and you could even go back to some biblical examples of well before Greece. So uh, let's go ahead and jump ahead, though, to the more recent examples. Since I've been talking about modern history in the past few episodes, I will start off with Malthusian theory. And this comes roughly from 1798. That's the date I have down. I'm not exactly sure why. It might be when a book was published that talks about this by Thomas Malthus, if I remember right, but I'm not positive. But um, the whole idea here is that he says that population will end up exceeding the food supply. So there will be too many people and we won't be able to feed them or take care of them. There's a limited amount of resources. So basically resources, we might be able to get more and more over time, but only a slight bit more over time, whereas the population rate is increasing exponentially. And at some point, if you graph that out, those lines will cross and the population rate will be well above the amount of resources that we have. And that obviously would not be good for anybody. And so what he suggests and what this theory uh, just inherently suggests is that you need population control. What this also would suggest is that it would probably be wise if you're a nation state or a ruler or leader or somebody that has the ability, probably be wise to control resources because that is going to be an issue in the future, according to this theory. So the specific things that he mentions are family planning, having late marriages, even celibacy. So these acts of not 
producing more children or limiting how many children someone has, and therefore kind of curbing this exponential growth of the population. But this idea, this was around the time of the British Empire, and the British Empire was just starting to expand. And this was, uh, many believe, part of that motivation for the British Empire to expand and colonize so many different areas is that they needed more resources. There were going to be so many more people, they knew that they weren't going to stop this, they might be able to slow it down at best. So they need to control as many resources as possible so they can take care of their own subjects. And I guess every other country be damned kind of idea. And so that was Malthus. Shortly after Malthus would come Darwin, who we've all heard of. And uh, I'm not going to go into the details of Darwin's theories, but the pertinent part to this view, looking at ideologies, would be that he wrote first The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. And that was the main book that Darwin wrote. He was definitely very racist, and he was a major eugenicist. And there are many reasons for that. But then another thing that he wrote, that was probably around, I think that was 1859, if I'm getting that correct, or at least somewhere around there. And the idea is just that populations and species evolve over time and over generations, and they evolve to match their surroundings, these types of things. That was kind of the main theory out of that. But the more pertinent book would be The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex. And this would have been 1871, I believe. I haven't double-checked these numbers, but they're in my notes, so they should be correct. And uh, I think I can count on that. But um, the... The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex actually does go into a biological adaptation of sexual selection. So that this is actually applying this to the human race and applying this to sexual reproduction and who chooses to breed with who and what that creates and how that affects, how you can steer those effects of the evolution of the species. And he does give a rating of races. And it's kind of interesting how um, the Irish are typically viewed as very, very low on the list. I think the very dark races are the lowest and the Irish are just barely above them. Uh, Nobody really liked the Irish at that time. Many of the big thinkers uh, were definitely frowning on the Irish as a race for some reason. But another influence on Darwin was his cousin Galton. Galton was a big name at the time and uh, has been until more recently, maybe the past few decades, he's kind of lost favor. But he was the one that coined the term eugenics. This would have been in roughly 1883. Eu was the Greek for well and genos, the Greek for offspring. So the idea is that he's talking about well-born. It's the well-born individuals. It recommends, or what Galton recommends, would be high-ranking families and bloodlines, at least in his perspective. You know, you could always argue who is high-ranking and who is a good bloodline and who isn't. Uh, But aside from that issue, uh, that these types of people, these bloodlines and families, should marry early and be encouraged to have many, many children. 
while at the same time, he would agree with Malthusian theory that the majority of everybody else should probably marry later and have fewer children. So what you would have happen when you are instituting kind of Darwin's ideas here with Galton's ideas, you pair these things together, and you can actually get a better human race. And better, I know, is also subjective, but from their opinions, you would get a better human race. You could lower disease, and you could lower, they thought, crime. They thought that was passed along generationally. You could lower uh, lack of intelligence. That was something that they viewed was passed on as well. Things of this nature. And in exchange, it's not just that you lower those things, you also raise the opposites. You have more children who are highly intelligent, more people who are highly skilled, more people who have aptitudes above the norm or what used to be the norm, and they're rising the average of what the norm is. And so that's what he was really talking about and proposing in his time. Again, that's 1883. So skip ahead a little bit. We're uh, following a brief chronological history here of basically eugenics. So I'm going to continue on with a bit of a timeline, and it might seem like I'm jumping around. I just don't want to spend all that much time in each one of these things. I just want to paint a picture that this was a pretty popular movement, and there was a lot going on in this time period. So the first date that I have here would be the first sterilization bill was proposed in Pennsylvania. It was vetoed, though. But in 1907, two years later, it was actually passed in Indiana, or a similar bill was passed. Then you had uh, forced sterilization bills passed in other places like Alberta, British Columbia, China, Bangladesh, Germany, India, Israel, all kinds of things. There's even um, this thing that happened in Israel where it was forced on Ethiopian women through what they said were birth control shots, and instead it was actually sterilizing them. This also, well, that didn't happen, but sterilization laws also occurred in Japan, Peru, Russia, South Africa, Sweden, Switzerland, and in the USA, you had 33 states that had compulsory sterilization programs at some point. And that should let you know that this was kind of a big deal. These are laws on the books that actually were carried out. This wasn't just a crazy Hitler-Nazi thing. This was something that was going on all around the world and was a major movement in the United States especially. So with the United States, that gets most of my focus usually, you had eugenics movements in America that received extensive funding from some names that will probably continue to repeat over the next few episodes. And that would be the Carnegie Endowment, the Rockefeller Foundation, and the Harriman fan family. And so you had, for example, in 1904, the Carnegie Institution started the Station for Experimental Evolution, and that opened up again in 1904. But you also had a eugenics record office open up in New York in 1911 that was funded again by the Carnegies, the Rockefellers, and the Harrimans. And the, one of the ideas that was going around at the time was that you needed to keep track of the uh, genetics, and they didn't necessarily call them genetics at the time, but you needed to keep track of the bloodlines and things like this of lots of citizens so they could gather data, so they could know who is breeding and maybe even recommend who should or shouldn't. Again, there's sterilization laws going on here, so who should you sterilize and who shouldn't you? 
these types of things. They needed the data. That was something pretty important. So that was part of this records office that was opened up then. But then you also had the American Breeders Association, and this was in 1903. They then changed their name to the American Genetic Association in 1914, because I guess the Breeders Association sounded too much like animals, and people didn't like being referred to as animals. But then you had the Galton Institute, which, again, going back to Galton, who coined the term eugenics, that was renamed the Eugenics Society in 1926, and that was in the United States. It also housed the offices for Planned Parenthood, which many people should be familiar with. It's still in existence today. So another aspect of Planned Parenthood, uh, that was started by Margaret Sanger, and she opened the first birth control clinic in 1921. She founded the American Birth Control League, and this was then renamed, like many of these things are renamed, uh, a certain term typically gets unfavorable, and then they rename it to something else that sounds better. But uh, the renaming of the American Birth Control League was to Planned Parenthood. She was a major racist, a major proponent of eugenics, and she... Uh, basically, her goal was to have these birth control clinics in poor black neighborhoods to slow the birth rates of those undesirable people. At least in her opinion, they were undesirable and bad for society. So she wanted to keep them from reproducing very often. So birth control was this method. And then that later phased into abortion. And early on, a lot of those abortion clinics that were funded by, I believe it was Planned Parenthood by that time, they often opened up in these poorer and usually minority-oriented neighborhoods. And yes, that fits right along. Margaret Sanger gave some talks at KKK rallies, for example. Not a very good role model. But then in 1935, the Nazis picked up on this idea. They passed the Nuremberg race laws. They did forced sterilization campaigns. They moved beyond that and did forced euthanasia for people that were undesirable and shouldn't be around, in their opinion. And this is what really gave eugenics a really bad name. So a lot of these name changes happened. A lot of them happened prior to the Nazis coming into power, but the ones that still existed definitely went uh, undercover after World War II. And uh, interesting fact, you had Hitler that actually uh, gave Margaret Sanger a medal and said that the U.S. was his example for how to carry out a eugenics program, their sterilization laws, the ideas of Margaret Sanger, and all of these things. I believe he gave her an award. He also gave an award to the head of IBM. IBM helped him to develop, well, IBM developed and then gave it to him, the Hollerith punch card system, and that's how they kept track of the Jews that were being sent to the concentration camps, these kinds of things. A lot of connections between Hitler and the Nazis and the Western banks and Wall Street and some of these big corporations that is not a very good thing, and we'll probably get into that in another episode, but if not, I've talked about it before, and you can go back and find those. But getting back to this idea of eugenics. This is the background and the history. So hopefully this shows you what eugenics is, 
roughly where it comes from, at least in the context of modern history. And it should make you aware that this is something that did take hold, that was extremely popular until it was demonized after the Nazis probably went way too far and overplayed their hand on this. And now this is something that is frowned upon pretty majorly. But what happened was the eugenics movement did a name change. And so instead of talking about eugenics, they now talk about things like bioethics or genetics or uh, microbiology, these types of things. And uh, it goes by many names, but it's basically the same thing. Now that we know what genes are, we know what genetics are, we, we're we not guessing. It's not this, I think they called it germaplasm, is what they were referred to as uh, what got passed down from parents to children that would make the children similar to the parents, because again, they didn't know about genetics and DNA at that time. And so now that we know about all these things, we just call it by those things, and all of a sudden we forget the term eugenics. Uh, no, that has nothing to do with eugenics. Well, actually, it's the study of the exact same things. And a lot of the people that are involved in funding that type of research are people involved with funding things like eugenics back in the early 1900s and many other things. We'll talk about the same names when we get to the Federal Reserve, the same names if we get into oil, the same names if we get into starting wars around the world. It's all the same names, interestingly enough. I'm sure it's just coincidence, though. But moving on to something a little new and a little more macro and shifting focus a little bit, let's look at this from a macro history perspective. I mentioned the ages of man, kind of where does this lie in the evolution of our society? It's We're not going all the way back to the origins of everything, so where are we really? Well, uh, the Enlightenment period is really what steers us into this modern age. It's kind of the foundation of our modern age. The entire age of economics and how that evolved was uh, centered around these Enlightenment ideas. With the Enlightenment, it steers toward a scientific outlook. So there's this separation of the secular and the religious realms, whereas those used to be pretty unified. The goal is generally to view things from a very objective standpoint, not subjective, not religious, but scientifically provable. The scientific method was gaining a lot of steam here and becoming commonplace. And what ended up happening was that this was pushing people and countries to ditch the remnants of the age of empire, the age of autocracy, the monarchs, the emperors, the uh, domains that were associated with these types of governmental structures. And things are officially shifted into this age of economics, which the age of economics I would classify as a plutocracy. It is not an autocracy where someone at the top is basically heading everything. It's more of a plutocracy where you have other people. It's more meritocracy oriented where it's based on skill. It's based on influence and wealth. It's based on these types of things, the rulership over a population, not just a single person that's passed down through the family. This is a very different system in the age of economics. And with this, the age of economics is focused on cunning and skill, whereas the age of empire was more focused on force. And so uh, we're shifting away from that brute force method and officially shifting into 
a method of using cunning and skill for countries to grow, to change, to influence, to control all these things that governments do and countries do and societies do, they're all now beginning to become oriented around cunning and skill. The dominating uh, human drive is the will to take. It's all about uh, trying to acquire and uh, and to hoard more things and more wealth. Wealth is a really big deal. In relation to nature, it's all about exploiting nature. How can we get as much pos- as possible out of nature? How can we take as much as possible? The main form of society is capitalism. Now, this basically defines all of those things. With technology, you have the Industrial Revolution happen in this time period, and it really solidifies this new class separation between the workers and the capitalists. Don't worry, I am not a Marxist, and I am in no way left, left-wing, left so if you're worried about that, don't be. But uh, yes, sometimes facts and logic steer you also away from being right-wing. But uh, in addition to... This being the case, you had the rise of the robber barons really come into play. So kind of at the beginning of this age of economics, you can think of the Reformation, you can think of the Medici family and the rise of the merchant class. And as the age of economics really gets solidified, you have this rise of the robber barons. And at the end of the age of economics, you start to have the rise of big tech. And it's all this same theme, the Medicis, the robber barons, big tech, they are from the merchant class, they are oriented around wealth and economics and capitalism, cunning, skill, the will to take and to acquire. Financiers are often in this class, and all of these groups get related to financing. And so this is a common theme. It's a pattern. This is the age of economics. And even if you go into the theories of Sarkar, who talks about uh, the different types of societies over millennia, how societies change and evolve and shift from one focus to another. Each one of these time periods, he associates with a certain archetype. And the archetype that would overlay onto the age of economics is, guess what? The merchant. So yes, it fits exactly. But that's that's the context that we're talking about when we're talking about how these ideologies really solidify and they really start to get implemented. It's all within this context of the age of economics. And what we need to keep in mind as we are applying this to more modern times and establishing the current systems that we live under is that we are shifting into the next age, out of the age of economics and into the age of science. This is an age of technocracy. It's not just about the will to take. It's more about the will to know. It's all about skill. It's not also this sense of cunning that is very dominant. It's more about pure skill. It's very objective. Again, if you look at this evolution stemming from the Enlightenment, it's really solidifying this idea that was very influential in the age of economics, and now that becomes the true foundation. We totally get rid of all religion, at least religion in the way that we would think of it in today's world. And uh, yes, you can get into secular religions. I've done episodes on that, and that is alive and well and definitely leading the charge in this age of science. Scientism, statism, and uh, wokeism would be huge influences here. But 
Overall, it's all about skill. It's about the experts. It's about analyzing data. You have scientists and engineers and technicians that are at the top. And the technology, we talked about the technology in the age of economics is the Industrial Revolution, and that kind of led from one thing to the other to the rise of the robber barons who are implementing a lot of these ideologies, namely eugenics. And it's the same in the age of technocracy. We see the beginnings of that. We are probably in the very early stages of this, but we see this happening where uh, we have this technology of computing and genetics. And with this, you see the rise of big tech. You see the rise of CRISPR technology and mRNA technology, these types of things, DNA manipulation. And so we're starting to see the very beginnings of this. Again, we're at the beginning of this age, so it's not something that is really solidified yet. But that is where we're headed, and we're already starting to see this happen. And in relation to nature, the perspective in the age of science is not how do we take advantage and exploit nature, but more, how do we change nature? How do we manipulate it? How do we uh, make it do what we want it to? How do we recreate nature in the image that we want, not in the image of the natural order or in the image of God? And so that is the overall idea in this age of science. So with this, we have shifting methods that are being used. We have shifting systems and structures. There's new technology, but it's the same goals. It's still all about maximizing the base human drives. These would be the will to survive or to live, the will to construct or to make, the will to control or to master, the will to acquire or to take, it's all about how do we maximize those? And we, being the people that actually have the power to have influence on a societal level, this would be people in, let's say, the category of the elite, the highly influential. And this could be out in the open, something like the British royal family. It could be, I, I think I would consider it out in the open, that the Gates Foundation has a lot of influence in the modern world. But you also have, uh, well, let's say tech entrepreneurs, Elon Musk, and you've got um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos, these types of people. They have some influence in the world. And you can go to politicians. You could say the Clintons. You could say, uh, let's go even further back to the Rockefellers, who are in the political realm, as well as robber barons and the Rothschilds, these types of people. These would be the types that you would see in a Bilderberg meeting, or you would see them going to Davos and the G20 summit. You would see them possibly at Bohemian Grove. These types of meetups, these are the highly influential people that I am referring to as the they. And uh, yes, they has quotes around it, and it's very difficult to define because I am not one of them, so I am not pervy to all of their information. But with this, you've got these desires, these base human drives that they are trying to maximize. They want to live. They want to survive. So what does that look like in the age of economics? Well, it's about taking as much, acquiring and hoarding as much wealth and influence as possible so that you can survive to the best of your ability. So long as nothing crazy happens, if you have a lot of money and a lot of wealth, you can buy your way out of a whole lot of stuff. 
uh, statistically, you are going to live longer. And if you have any issues, you can pay to probably fix those issues. You can afford to feed yourself healthy food. You have the time to exercise and do these types of things. So you're going to be much better off as far as living in the age of economics if you are acquiring and hoarding as much as possible. But in the age of science... It's not about that. It's not about the will to take. It's about the will to know. And it's about applying a scientific view on things, more objective. And so it's about learning what do I need to eat? How do I need to exercise? What programs do I need to implement? But not only that, it's about making sure that you fund the research so that people learn, so that they begin to know how to make humans live longer, period. This is something that they are headed towards with things like manipulating DNA and CRISPR technology and these types of things. That's one of the end games is to live forever. Man always wants to be God. And this is something that is taking a new form in the age of science. Well, what about the will to, to construct or to make well, it used to be about creating these structures, these foundations, these corporations, these governments, these political systems. You create these structures, and I would say that ties in with the next drive to control or to master, because that's the point of these structures. It's, number one, about attaining more and more wealth and power and influence, but it's also about controlling and mastering a population or a market or a country. And so that's what that's all about. But when you shift into the age of science, when you construct and make things, remember I talked about how this is all about manipulating nature, changing nature. It's not that you're creating a corporation to exploit nature. It's that you're actually like creating a new life form. That's that's where we're headed in the age of science. It is much more extreme and it is very different. So that's what you are making. You are making new entities. You are creating AIs. You're creating virtual worlds. These types of things. Uh, that's what the construction, the drive to make is and how it's implemented. But these structures, these things also will fulfill, they will be the methods for this drive to control and to master. If you create a virtual world, and people come, let's say the metaverse is uh, kind of fairly newly in the news where Facebook changed their name to meta and they have this virtual world that they're creating and people can go to it in VR. Well, as technology progresses, where this leads to is that the virtual realm feels, looks, smells a lot like the real world, if not indistinguishable. That's kind of the goal is that it eventually gets there. And theoretically, it probably is headed that way. And what happens is that once you have that, and even on your way to that, you have constructed and you have made your own world with your own laws, with your own rules, you are your own God, and you have created this thing, this is your creation, then anybody in your creation, you have a lot of control over them. You are the master over this dominion. And so again, it fulfills this desire to control, to master. And then finally, this desire to acquire or to take. That was something I already talked about in relation to the age of economics. And when we get into this next age, the age of science, it's going to be all about acquiring and taking power and influence and resources, basically all the things they need in order to regulate and control the evolution of the species and society as a whole. So if you look at a movement like technocracy, 
one of the main factors of technocracy and how it works is that it's all about resource management. So what do you have to do? Well, you've got to take control of the resources in order to be able to manage them. Of course, you've got to gain the power, the influence over the masses in order for them to willingly go along with you being these technocrats that are making all the rules, these types of things. So again, as we are looking at all of these ages, the ages of man and all these changes, and as society shifts and evolves, there are some things that stay the same. They are just manifested in different ways. So that's what I would say about eugenics as well. It's not that it just disappeared. No, it was around way back in Plato's time. It was around in the 1800s and early 1900s. It's around today and it's going to be around 100 years from now. But how it's manifested, how it is implemented, how it is thought about, how it is presented to the public does change, that does evolve, and that's what we're shifting into. So that then brings us to our modern systems. So we've talked about this modern history and this idea of eugenics as a foundational ideology among, let's say, the elite. And that brings us into what's going on today. Now, I do want to step back and say again that this is all about man becoming God. This is the goal. The goal is that man can control nature, manipulate nature, change nature, that's the goal for these people. And nature is the entire natural order. It's not just the plants and the trees outside. It's everything. And this includes humanity, the homo sapien race. They want to be able to control how humanity evolves. They want to be able to steer that. That's the whole idea of eugenics is to uh, improve and in some cases degrade the evolution of humanity. And so with that, there is this other component of control. So if the goal is to be able to implement your goals to become a god where you have full control over everything, well, control is just part of that. And what is eugenics, if not control over humanity and the evolution of humanity? So with that in mind, the next step to look at would be our current modern system and the beginnings of that. So that's kind of where we are in the series as a whole. Talked about the origins, talked about modern history. We're talking about the modern history behind the scenes now through some corruption and conspiracy and those types of things. And so the, this is where we are. And some of these things sound like I am talking about now and the future, but I'm actually talking about the past because these are not brand new ideas. These are ideas that have occurred in systems that have been set up in our own modern history that takes us to where we are today. So the first would be this idea of, it goes by many names, but let's say the New World Order, or in a post-COVID world, you could say the Great Reset, or some might go back to Agenda 21, or some people might say it's the Deep State's Globalist Agenda, or maybe it's the evolution of the Cecil Rhodes Roundtable groups, uh, whatever you want to call it, and there are many things you could call it, uh, whatever you want to go. Some people go as far as saying it's the lizard people or some other alien race, who knows, but 
Regardless, you have some type of system that is more international in scope, that does have large control over the people, and most of the people that are associated with, we'll call it the New World Order, do have backgrounds and quotes that you can find where they talk about eugenics. And this goes to modern American presidents. You can go to Churchill. You can go to the British royal family. You can go to the Rockefellers. You can go to the Rothschilds. You can go to all of these very, very influential folks. Bill Gates. It's It spans the spectrum here. And these are the people, the families, the groups that are pushing for this idea of a new world order, often not behind the scenes, not in secret. There are many examples of that. And again, I've done episodes where I go into detail about what those specific examples are. So if you want that, go back and listen to those. But with this, there are certain goals and methods that the new world order uses to implement and assert itself. And these goals and methods, they sound good at first, but they become very disturbing and dystopian when you give it a little bit of scrutiny and try to figure out exactly what they're talking about. So let me briefly go over some of these. Number one, they want world unity and world peace. So what is this really? Well, this is globalism. This is a one-world government that is political and or monetary and or religious. It doesn't really matter. This is some sort of worldwide socialism with probably a fiat world currency and complete control by somebody at the top because this is all unified as one system. So there is some sort of controllers or rulers at the top. And those at the top would virtually have complete control, unlimited money, power, influence, all these things. So that doesn't really sound very good to me and probably not to most of you. But what we started off with, world peace and world unity, yeah, that sounds great. But when we really get into what that means and how that is applied according to these people in their own words, no, it doesn't sound great. The next one would be economic equality for all, and this idea of ending poverty. This is something that is spoken of a lot in these circles, and what happens is that the classes are basically condensed. So currently you might have the working class, the capitalists, the business executives, the small business owners, people in the trades and teachers and doctors, and all of these different people with different economic statuses. And the goal is to bring them to some level of equality. This is economic equality. And so this condenses all of these classes down to one to where they're basically only the working class. Kind of lower middle class would probably be the rough average. And for most people, I don't think this is what they want. Even people in a lower class, they want the possibility and potential of getting well beyond lower middle class in the future, but they would not have that. Even if they were brought up, so to say, from low class to lower middle class, that's an improvement from one standpoint, but if that's all you're ever going to be, then uh, most people probably wouldn't really want that. And I just about guarantee you, anybody in a higher class does not want to be demoted economically down to lower middle class. 
And with this, that is not the entire world that gets condensed into this one unified equal class. You, of course, have to have some elite class at the top that's actually managing things and running things and ruling things. And so again, you get this separation between the elite class at the top and everybody else's working class. And with this, it does keep society complacent and compliant, ideally for the elite, where everyone has what they need. There is uh, no lack for food or housing or education or anything of that sort, even if you might define all those things a little differently than we would ideally define them. But with this, it's there's not a lot to push people to rebel against this type of system because they have what they really need. And in reality, the elites pretty much need workers and laborers to produce the things that they're going to use to change raw resources into products that they want. And so until technology can replace workers, which it is headed there, the elites would definitely prefer to have people make these things for them because they don't want to make them themselves, that's for sure. But you can't push people so far that it pushes them to rebellion. That's the check on a tyrannical system. So as long as you keep up the bread and circus enough where people are content and compliant, it works well. Well, does this sound good? Of course it doesn't. But does economic equality and ending poverty sound good? Yes, that sounds great. But the way that they want to apply that and the way they've talked about that, yeah, not ideal. Even Hitler understands this. I don't have the quote in front of me right now, but there is a quote in Mein Kampf, I believe it's Mein Kampf, one of his writings, where he talks about how the current uh, German government of the time, and this was before he was in charge of it, they had discounted a large group of people. There was this large group of disenfranchised folks that were poor, and the government really wasn't looking out for them. They didn't really care about them. They pushed them to the side, and he pointed out how this could lead a group like that to then rebel against the system, and that's probably not what you want to do as a world leader or as a government. And so, yeah. Moving on, another goal would be to stop discrimination and hate speech. And I think in today's world, we all understand where that leads because we are seeing it firsthand in real time here. And that is controlling all media, pushing propaganda, censoring dissent, controlling the internet and the media as a whole. You control personal interactions. There are bills that have gone into play in the United States where they've talked about censoring text messages, SMS messages, and all kinds of stuff like this. And this was coming out back in like the pre-Snowden days. There were people that leaked information out about the NSA and the CIA that were actually gathering information on people, emails, phone calls, and not just the metadata, which is what was talked about so much in the media at that time, but they were actually getting the transcripts and the recordings of calls, emails, text messages, all these kinds of things. So again, this is not new. This is not futuristic. This is actually in the past. But yes, this has been going on for a while and then come into the COVID era and everything went into hyperdrive. But with this, yes, again, stopping discrimination and hate speech sounds really good. But um, this is one where I think we see it more than the others because we're witnessing it uh, firsthand. 
but that's not ideal the way they want to implement that. The next one is to stop greed and corruption. This is something that is, uh, for some reason, it doesn't make logical sense if you look at it on a surface level, where people in this elite class talk about corporate greed and the problems with this and the problems that that has on society. And yeah, at first, that wouldn't make a lot of sense. And maybe they're just altruistic and they are... Uh, just looking out for the good of the common person and good for them. But, you know, that's not really reality. That's not the way things work. Uh, What this really means is that they want to control regulation and business and production and jobs and profits, all of these kinds of things, licensing for everything. It's the ultimate crony capitalism. And this is all under the guise of stopping greed and corruption. Well, how do you stop greed and corruption? Well, it's through regulation. It's through licenses. It's through controlling these corporations. And what does that mean? That means the state and the corporations are tied together because the state is controlling them. And currently, we already know the corporations are mostly controlling the state. And what happens when you marry the state and the corporate world? That's called fascism. That's called crony capitalism. That's called lots of different things that are not good. And so... Uh, With this, that is what is really happening when they go after this goal of stopping greed and corruption. The final thing I'll mention is something that, in a way, is in the future, because this could be the next paradigm after our biosecurity state that's come into effect post-COVID, but this is protecting the environment and saving the planet. Of course, this sounds great. And uh, again, like all of these other things, they're based in truth. We do well, we should want to take care of the earth and the environment. That is a good thing to do. However, the way they want to do that is through more control, more regulation. They can do whatever they want as long as they have, quote, environmental reasons. It's kind of like looking in the post 9-11 world and anything related to, quote, national security and the government can do whatever the heck they want. And same thing with the post-COVID world, if it has to do with Uh, people's health, then uh, they can institute whatever the heck they want. And that's just the way it goes. So this then gets applied to the environment and climate change, these kinds of things. There is the idea from Agenda, was it Agenda 2020, and now it's 2030. And the part of this would be to bring people together in more compact, high-density areas and leave the rest of nature to go back to being wild. So we'll let the wilds get more wild and do what they do, and all of the people will be condensed into these smaller areas so that we don't have a large negative impact on everything else. Another thing is overpopulation, so we need to control the population And uh, this is something that's talked a lot about by people like Bill Gates, for example, who has definitely been in the limelight in the COVID world. But all of this is about, they say, protecting the environment. We need to stop eating meat because it's bad for the environment. When I've used this example before, in reality, a cow that's out on pasture eating grass is sequestering carbon into the ground. Whereas a cow raised on a feedlot in the traditional agricultural sense in modern agriculture is increasing carbon output. So 
what you should do is stop raising the cows the current conventional way and put them out on pasture. Then you're actually bringing down the carbon load. But instead, they say you just don't do cows at all, and they have zero impact on carbon. At least they're not upping it, I guess, in their mind. But yes, it just doesn't make sense because it's not really about the carbon, at least in any sense other than the overall narrative that we're anti-carbon. And what is carbon? Well, we're all carbon-based life forms. So yes, that does tie in with this whole idea of being anti-life. And the overall theme is that the new enemy is humankind. And humans are what are really wrong with this world. We're, it's like in the Matrix, like we're a virus on the world. And that is the narrative that's getting spun here. So with this, that does not sound very good. But although this is in the past, uh, the Rio Summit, I think was 1992. I'm not positive on that, though. But that's where they came up with the agenda 2020. So again, this isn't new, but it could be the next paradigm or the one after the next one. I'm guessing it's biosecurity. It was uh, national security and terrorism. Now it's biosecurity. I think the next will be uh, this environmentalism of some form or fashion, whether it be climate change or something of that sort. And so this is probably not only past, but also future, but it's all going to be under the excuse of taking care of the environment, fighting climate change, these types of things. Now, as we look forward and also continue to look at our current systems and ideas that are behind them, this really comes into play in a few areas. I've got technocracy, cybernetics, social engineering, and transhumanism. And again, these all sound very futuristic, but again, they all have been in the milieu for quite a while. Technocracy, for example, the movement was going around in the 20s and 30s. Uh, definitely the 30s and some writings that I go back to are in the 20s. But uh, this is not a new thing. That, that was a while ago. That is in this modern history time period that I have been talking about the past few episodes. But what is technocracy? Technocracy is all about taking the politicians out of managing society. So politicians don't need to manage society. Experts need to manage society. And like I talked about, where you have the enlightenment that is more objective, more scientific, that is technocracy. Technocracy is applying that to managing a society. It's a resource management system. And so what you want to be able to do is account for everything within that system, everything that's bought, everything that's sold, everything that's created, everything that's mined, everything that's planted, everything, absolutely everything. And then you take all of that information and you adjust inputs and outputs and make it all objectively line up with the needs, the demands of that society. And you make it all fair and you make sure everyone's taken care of and all these things. And yes, it all sounds great. But there are, yes, plenty of bad things about it. And I've talked plenty about technocracy. But again, not a new movement. But that's, that's this paradigm of 
the age of science that we're shifting into. Technocracy didn't really take off in the 30s or in the 40s, except when I guess you could argue that Kissinger and the like, they exported that to China and started a technocratic system mixed with capitalism. And that was the possible experiment for the future of the USA or the world. That's definitely a possibility. But in general, technocracy is not currently the ruling system. We still have nation states that exist much like they have for quite a while throughout the age of economics. But the age of science is something where these things are shifting. And you definitely see this in the COVID narrative. Uh, It's definitely come to the front where you're supposed to trust the science. You're supposed to trust the experts. These phrases are actually being used. So yes, this is what's happening. Now, cybernetics, it's another thing that is not too new that happened, I believe it was really big in the 60s, if I'm getting my dates right, sometime within a decade of that. But the idea of cybernetics is that you have a systems perspective that's all about causality and circular causality with feedback. So you have a thing and something happens or there's some environmental factor or there's something associated with that thing that gives a certain amount of feedback, which comes back around to the beginning of the system. And that original thing adapts or changes or does something because of that stimulus of the feedback. And that then uh, takes into account whatever the next environmental aspect is, and there's feedback from that, and it adapts again, and it's a circular system. It's kind of like a thermometer is an example that's used a lot, where Uh, The thermometer is just a thing. It's a tool. It's a thing that sits there and just measures the temperature in the air. But what happens is when the temperature reaches a certain point, so when there's this environmental factor within the system that comes up, and that's, say, a temperature reaching 80 degrees, and let's say that's the cutoff where it kicks on the air conditioning. And so you have this factor that comes in. You have this feedback of, hey, it's 80 degrees, and the thermostat kicks something in and changes something about the environment. Then it reads the environment again, then there's feedback, then there's adaptation, and the system just continues within itself. Uh, This is where the big push for ecosystems came from and looking at things from that perspective is that an ecosystem is like this. It's a it's a big system that's based on feedback. It's a circular system where one thing uh, responds from the feedback of something else and environmental factors and it changes and adapts and then encounters others and there's more feedback and it changes and adapts and all these are working within themselves. So it's one species with one plant, with one ecosystem, with everything else all within the macro ecosystem of uh, the area that you're talking about. All of this is cybernetics. And so if you apply a cybernetic perspective to a human society, then you get things like automation, the Internet of Things, 5G, censorship, um, mass control of the media and communications, all of these kinds of things. That's what it is, where you control all of those things. And you can control a lot of the environmental factors. You control the feedback. You control what that adaptation is because of the feedback. Maybe you give certain feedback to the masses so that you stimulate a problem reaction solution uh, 
system where that comes up and you get this Hegelian dialectic and that is very similar. That is a more cybernetic approach where you are taking this cybernetic perspective, applying that to a society, to a population, and you're actually controlling that instead of witnessing it and seeing how it operates and making a few little tweaks. You are actually trying to control as much as possible so that it steers you in a direction that you want to go. And if you understand cybernetics and how those systems work, how that feedback loop works and how that circular causality works, then you can be much more effective. Well, that brings us into this idea of social engineering. Social engineering is all about uh, changing and steering how a society progresses, how a society views things. What's the worldview of the majority of a certain society? And if you can control that, if you can change that, if you can evolve that under your own terms, well, that's what social engineering is. It's controlling the education. It's population control. It's steering society towards your own goals. It's specialization where people focus in these uh, small specialized things and you might steer them to specialize in certain things so that certain fields get uh, brought up maybe slightly artificially. And while you're doing this, uh, these people that are specialized in certain fields, they don't have this broad education of how everything connects. And so you don't have this classical education model, but instead a highly specialized model where people are much easier to control and you have this whole social engineering aspect going on here. The next concept to mention would be transhumanism. And transhumanism is all about using... The technology integration and biological manipulation to basically force evolve beyond current humanity. This uh, increases the control of the elites in the guise of increasing the ability of the individual. So you can say you as an individual are going to be a better human being. You're going to have more abilities, more skills, more aptitudes because of these enhancements that you're going to get, whether they be technological or biological. But underneath that, there is a much uh, greater level of control that is uh, being held by these elites. So let's say there's some sort of bioengineering being done. Well, maybe they patent that. And maybe if that's in your own genes, well, that might mean that part of you is patented and owned by a corporation. That's probably not a good thing. Maybe you have to have a certain social credit score in order to get a certain upgrade. But without that upgrade, you're not going to be able to get the job that you really want and uh, yeah, you have lots of different things like this where there's a gatekeeper role, there is a control over the technology because maybe they can push an up update or maybe they can hack into your systems in some way. Maybe they can control what information is fed to you through your Neuralink brain chip or whatever the case may be. But ultimately, the individual will get some enhancements but at the cost of giving up some control and sovereignty over their own life. And yes, I would argue that's not an ideal thing. But all of these things, the technocracy, the cybernetics, the social engineering, the transhumanism, 
these are all the things that are being done. These are a lot of the goals. These are a lot of the methods being used. And these are the things that are really taking center stage as we shift into the age of science and out of the age of economics. And with all of this, you could say that it's all about, again, man becoming God. That is the goal, where we can uh, control how a a society acts and interacts and what it produces and who gets what. That's the idea of technocracy and cybernetics. Maybe we can control a culture. We can control what people think, how they think, what they believe, what they do, these types of things. Well, that's social engineering. Maybe we completely control what it means to be human. We can redefine what it means to be human. Well, that's transhumanism. And all of these things are all about taking these roles that that uh, most people believe once belonged only to God and applying them to man, where man creates whatever the heck he wants and whatever image he wants, and man can manipulate the natural order and everything around him so that it suits his desires. And that is definitely something very different than what was going on before. However, Again, the ideologies, the goals, these ideas and concepts, they are not new. It's only the way that they are being carried out and the form that they are taking, the way it's being manifested, that does change and that is new. So really all this comes together to create Plato's Republic. Again, it all goes back to Plato. It always does. And Plato's Republic talks about all of these things. They just didn't obviously have the technology and some of these philosophical concepts did not have the same terms. The word eugenics was not used, but the concept of eugenics was clearly explained by Plato. And the same is true of most of the rest of this stuff. So we are creating Plato's Republic with a technological society and this technological society that we live in and how uh, the extent to which it has evolved. Um, Sorry, Ted Kaczynski, who uh, definitely warned us about all of this, but we're here. And so uh, there are good and bad things about that. But with that, we are implementing Plato's Republic with a technological society which enables us to fully implement the ideology and really any ideology. And since the ideologies that have been behind most all of modern history, if not most all of history, since those ideologies are oriented around man becoming God, they're oriented around eugenics and control, well, I think we can safely assume that that is probably how things are going to go in the future. And again, the question is not what are the goals? The question is not even what are the methods? The question is more about how quickly this is going to get implemented, to what extent will it get implemented, and which manifestations will have the most focus and which will go to the back burners. And the biggest question with all of this, since we already know what these ideologies are, what the goals are, what the methods are, what the trends are, what the historical patterns are, we can already see all these things. And this is not some big secret. I think a lot of us at least know most of this uh, to a, a surface level degree. But even when we know all the details about it and we learn more and more about it, 
the real question comes down to, well, what are you going to do about it? Which is not really the topic for this episode, and I'm not going to get into it because this episode pretty much is over. But that's where it brings us. And I would, I would definitely encourage you not to get bogged down in all the negative aspects of these things and in all the conspiracy rabbit trails and in all the details that so-and-so said this and this organization did XYZ and blah, blah, blah. I, I think it is very good, very helpful, very beneficial to know these things, to understand these things, to be able to see the trends, see where we're headed, see where we came from. These are all very good things. But don't get completely bogged down into that where you don't then do something in your own life in response to these things or to protect yourself and your family against these things. And that's where it should really take us. So instead of just keeping this at an intellectual level, we need to realize how this can be actually applied and what role we can play in that. And again, that's not the role of this current episode, but I've talked about it before. I'll talk about it again, and that'll be a later theme. So I am going to end this episode here. Hopefully this sets us up well for the following episode talking about corruption and conspiracy and the groups and the people behind the modern era and our current modern systems. So we'll talk about the Rothschilds, the Council on Foreign Relations, Cecil Rhodes, the Roundtable Groups. I don't know what else. We'll talk about all kinds of stuff. Rockefellers, all of these types of groups and these people and the impacts that they had, what their, again, what their methods were. So I talked some about the macro level, the ideology, the methods, the goals, these types of things. Now we're going to look at a more concrete historical level of the actual people and groups that did these kinds of things that uh, influenced society, used social engineering that actually did change things and steer things behind the scenes, influence people in power, control governments, all of these kinds of wonderful things. So that's where we'll go in the next episode is looking more concrete on more of a fact fact-based historical look of corruption and conspiracy in the modern age that created the systems that we have now federal reserve system that's another one we'll probably talk about so that's what's coming up in the next episode i hope that's something that you enjoy and if you have any questions or comments or concerns or anything whatsoever please feel free to reach out to me our foundations at protonmail.com if you would like to support the show, that would be greatly appreciated. I put out this content for free and I do not make any money off of it, but I do get enough support to pay for hosting and that kind of thing. Every once in a while, I can buy some new equipment. I have been able to buy some books for research, that kind of thing. So, so far, the podcast is currently fully supported by listeners. So, Hopefully that will continue. Some people have to drop off, especially in the past few, uh, let's say the past year or two. Things have been really hard on people economically. I know some people have dropped off for those reasons. But if you're interested in supporting, please do so. See the Patreon page or the Subscribestar page. You can do it on either one. And there are even some perks for doing so. Other than that, I'm on Twitter, at FoundationsPC. 
and I started a TikTok account, which I would not recommend anybody get on. It's complete trash or almost complete trash. I'm sure there might be something decent on it. Hopefully I'm putting something decent on it, but I'm using it only as a basically a marketing tool for the podcast. And I think it's under our foundations, if I remember right. It's not something that I'm going to spend a lot of time on, but it's something else that you can find me on. So please feel free to reach out. There's also a website with all kinds of stuff, and you can stream the show from there. But that's all I've got. I'll be back next time to continue this series on corruption and conspiracy in the modern age. And for now, I'm out. Peace. This has been Our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye.